Howdy, my name is Karok Ray. Uh, I am a professor at Texas A&M in the Mays Business School and director of the Mays Innovation Research Center, which is sponsoring this podcast, Innovation Matters. Today, we're delighted to welcome Chad Sparks and Jason Hurst of uh, Bell, which is, uh, used to be called Bell Helicopter, but uh, is a, one of the original players in aviation. And we're here to hear about their, uh, their a little bit about uh, the genesis of the company and where they are now. Welcome, Chad and Jason. Thanks. Appreciate Thanks. Appreciate it. Great. So, um, so uh, t tell me, uh, Chad. Chad, just to start off, you uh, you came to A and M. Uh, a little bit about your your journey here and uh, your major in aerospace. Can you tell us a little bit about why you did that and how that came to be? Yeah, uh, like like most young burgeoning engineers, I I anchored myself as a young child on Legos and just loved everything about what I imagined um, you know, this, this creative space in engineering to be. Uh, I dreamed of being an astronaut like many young children, and you know, that led me on a, on a really clear path towards aerospace engineering. I, I wanted to be a part of that industry. I wanted to be a part of uh, the space community in particular, and so that's what set me on a path from uh, the small town I grew up here in Texas in Victoria, uh, and then found myself in College Station just a few years later. Great, great. And tell me a little and briefly about your career afterwards. So I, as, I, as I went through the, the degree program at A&M, I, I did co-op here, and so I spent time actually working with Johnson Space Center in Houston as a, as a co-op engineer and thought I had a trajectory in space, but then uh, things shift. Sometimes your career path isn't quite as clear as you thought it was going to be, and uh, you know, NASA went on a hiring freeze, and I uh, you know, looked at a different vector and uh, found uh, by interviewing at Bell and seeing some of the amazing work that they were doing at the time, I took the leap into the world of, of rotary wing and rotorcraft, and that, that allowed me the opportunity to progress in engineering uh, for about the first decade of my career at Bell. I spent a lot of time in uh, survivability, so blowing up a lot of stuff, uh, doing a lot of signature analysis and things for our defense customers, but then you know, from, from there really progressed into some broader business parts of my career. And so over the last uh, decade and a half, I've spent time in supply chain, I've spent time in program management, I've spent time in business development, and today I find myself in a role that's this combination of both uh, strategy and really thinking about deeply in, in how the company aligns resources within the organization. Great, great. And Jason, uh, tell us what your role is now at Bell. So I'm the Vice President of Innovation for the company, so responsible for all research activities for both the uh, defense and military side of the business and for commercial products. Okay, great. And maybe Jason, could you tell us what we're looking at here? Uh, maybe tell us what the, what's on the screen. So sure, this is a, a family of systems that's uh, for what we call our high-speed vertical takeoff and landing. So it's uh, that's not something that's new for Bell. Bell um, has a lot of uh, deep history in high-speed aircraft, even uh, the X-1, which is the first aircraft that broke the sound barrier. And then with the um, B-280, uh, with the 525, and with the um, Bell 360, we have the highest speed rotorcraft in the world. Uh, at some point you reach some physical limitations with those configurations. So this is really the next generation uh, beyond the current FVL efforts to reach new speeds and go over 400 knots with an aircraft that has a true vertical takeoff and landing capability. Great. Now Chad, who, who are your primary buyers of these, uh, these aircraft? Well, for aircraft like this, this is primarily defense customers. Uh -huh. you know, they, uh, each and every day we've got, uh, whether they're Marine Corps operators or Air Force or Army, you know, get up and utilize rotorcraft every day. 
in order to move people and goods to, to wherever they need, both in the battlefield and really even in humanitarian aid and relief efforts. And so, uh, you know, vehicles like this are all about how do we get uh, speed and range so that uh, our defense operators can be even more effective in what they do every day. Okay, so you don't really have a retail customer yet. Uh, Correct. This is yet. this high-speed vertical takeoff landing is not primarily, at least as an entry point, a commercial customer opportunity. Generally, what we see in, in our industry is this evolution of cutting-edge technology, generally driven by our defense customers that the, we then pivot into our commercial business. It's nice with Bell being a fairly balanced business of a almost 50-50 portfolio between defense rotorcraft and commercial rotorcraft that yeah. allow us to apply dual-use technologies in those ways. Okay, okay, great. Jason, tell us a little bit about, uh, about innovation at Bell, which is kind of your home department. Sure. So Team was launched about five years ago to really look at what are the over-the-horizon technologies, how can we be disruptive? Uh, because the, the, the world we live in, as Chad described, it's very uh, mature technologies, mature markets. So the areas we're focusing on with our research efforts, with our experimental aircraft, are in the areas of autonomy, you know, electrification and hybrid electric aircraft, and also unmanned systems. Well, um, our team is also responsible for all advanced concepts, so any, any future uh, military or commercial variants, things like you see there, all of that's generated from our team. Then we identify what technology gaps we have to make those possible. And at the point that we close those technology gaps, we hand those off to the uh, product and business owners. And our team rolls into what's the, what's the next area of uh, research focus. And a lot of this innovation is uh, your, your R&D is all done in-house. Do you, do you acquire smaller startups on a regular basis? We, we've been uh, fairly selective on acquisitions. Um, our corporate parent um, does a lot of that activity for us. We recently um, acquired Pipistrel through our e-aviation division, which actually has the world's first and currently only uh, certified electric aircraft. Uh -huh. And so we, we do things uh, where they're necessary like that. But mostly we do a lot of our research internally and through partnerships with universities as well as partnerships through a lot of the DOD research labs. So actually that was one of my next questions. I mean, and either of you can take it, is about uh, the electric air aircraft. Uh, how far are we from that technology? Does it exist? Uh, will it scale at, at larger aircraft? Uh, what, do you, what do you think? So absolutely, you'll see that it's starting small. You know, yeah. um, a lot of the challenges we have with electrification are in the effective range of the aircraft. You know, the, obviously the, uh, the fuel is way less energy dense yeah. uh, than, than liquid fuels we use today. Um, that being said, that's going to improve over time. So what we're doing is figuring out what is the architecture, what, is the, uh, what are the safety standards yeah. we need to meet with electric aircraft, and then starting small and growing it. So if you look like an, an example, we have the first electric aircraft that we're looking to deliver on a Bell side is a 400-pound uh, cargo drone. Uh, we call the APT for Autonomous Pod Transport. Yeah. And we've flown that in several you know, real-world operational scenarios. We've flown it in the desert. We've flown it in the jungle. We've even flown it into a populated neighborhood to simulate a, a cargo delivery, and we're looking to what are those pilot programs that will prepare that to be a disruptive force um, in the market. Chad, do you see uh, the electric airplane or the electric helicopter to be the future of, uh, of aircrafts? I, I think there's going to be a synthesis of several concepts. You know, uh, the, it's all about ultimately the customer value proposition. The things that are interesting about the electrification of propulsion systems in particular is that there's a there's a simplicity that comes with it in design. Uh, there's the opportunity to potentially reduce operating costs in those areas. But to Jason's point, 
the, the full capability set is not there compared to conventional turbo machinery today. And so I, I think you'll see a, a meshing of those as capabilities grow within the electrification side of the world. Uh, you'll begin to, to enter more and more of the traditional markets. But I, I think for, a, for quite some time, you're going to see a hybrid of both. You'll see traditional turbo machine aircraft that are able to do many of the missions that we do today because of either the, the payload or the range that's yeah. required. Uh, but the electrification ones are interesting in that I, I think there's an opportunity to, to actually create some new use cases that maybe aren't being served today that'll be some of these early entry points into the market. You know, Jason talks about the apt vehicle and where we see it fitting. It's a really interesting space in that, that's a, that unmanned cargo logistics is an emerging market. So you're talking about disrupting not just traditional aviation industries, but even ground-based transportation. You know, how are we uh, delivering medical supplies in... Uh, infrastructure challenged areas. You know, I see uh, I see things like lab lab specimens and vaccines being transported in places like uh, Sub-Saharan Africa using drones. Now that 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 would have been a ten or twelve hour trip by ground vehicle, you're right. now doing in thirty or forty minutes with an unmanned vehicle. Are you finding that maybe in other countries uh, that are either less developed or less regulated, it's going to be easier to deploy that technology than here in the U.S. Yeah, to me, it, it all matches up with what's the, what's the use case. Uh, certainly because of the, the environment that we see here in the U.S. and the robust infrastructure that's here and the regulatory climate that we see here, there are certainly a set of challenges that come yeah. with that. In, in some of the more undeveloped parts of the world, uh, generally you, you've got a, a cross-section of trying to find the right use case with the right economics in the right regulatory environment. And so we're seeing today uh, sort of... Um, a bunch of different points of light that are out there. Yeah. So very small, limited use cases that we're seeing be applied. Very few of those are in what I would consider a revenue-generating opportunity. Most of them are in early pilot programs, uh -huh. either proving the technology yeah. uh, or they're proving early business models. Yeah, I wonder if, if, uh, if we'll see what happened with aircraft, what we saw with phones, which is that these less developed countries sometimes skip the landline yeah. and went straight, straight to the mobile. Yeah. A lot of the use cases Chad's highlighting is a lack of infrastructure, yeah. which which ties into the phone example as well. But if there's not a you know, road network, right. or if it, and, and that could be in developing countries, but it also can be in more um, remote areas domestically as well. You know, some of the other use cases we see are for supporting mining operations, yep. supporting you know hot shotting things, support farming operations, things that. Um, you know, how is it? How does it beat the next best alternative yeah. from a from a uh, business perspective? Is it saves you time if you have machines that are down or uh, you know certain areas that need resupplied? How can you resupply faster and get them up and running again? Is Bell uh, involved in personal flight? Uh, and if not, how close do you get to that that area of personal? I'd say from a personal flight standpoint, the closest we we get to that today is really in our conventional rotorcraft. So we have. The Bell 505, which is basically a five-passenger uh, turbine helicopter. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's sort of the entry point into traditional vertical lift space. Yeah. Uh, we generally consider that the, the clients that we see or the customers that we see for that aircraft is generally a cross-section of you know, personal ownership models. There's corporate, corporate models. We're seeing some early uh, parapublic and police and uh, folks that are in that space as well. But in terms of what I would consider kind of True personal flight, like vehicles that are you know one person to one one vehicle. Generally, we have we have somewhat shied away from that space uh, just because some of the economics around it are really challenging to yeah. converge on. And and where 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 Bell really has its strengths are on you know 
commercially derived aircraft that require uh, a really robust uh, certification process, a really robust engineering manufacturing development process that's that's driven into vehicles that are generally larger than a, than a personal vehicle space. So that five-person helicopter you mentioned, that is, are we talking like the hospital helicopter or a police helicopter? Is that roughly the size and scale? Or? Yeah, I would say the, the hospital and police helicopters generally are, are a, a step size larger than that. You know, okay. Bell actually has a portfolio of commercial aircraft, uh, the 505 being the smallest of those. Okay. Uh, going up one kind of step beyond that is the Bell 407. Yeah, generally you can you can load a single litter into that into that aircraft and provide uh, provide it for hospital transport. And then as you go up to a to a, a twin engine aircraft in the Bell 429, you'll see a larger cabin, more space to operate in. Um, and and we we work very specific requirements for aircraft like that. So uh -huh. ride quality in the in the case of the 407 or the 429 is really important. If you're attempting to do any kind of medical procedure while in transit. Uh, something as simple as just inserting an IV, you want super smooth ride quality as part of that. So we've got a lot of great engineers that they spend and hone a lot of their time and energy on providing really great damping technologies to ensure that, you know, you've got the best possible environment for medical care. Okay. Uh, let me, let's talk about autonomy. Um, uh, the, uh, solving the autonomy problem in the air is conceptually simpler than on the ground, less, less the obstacles. Are all of your helicopters uh, able to be fully autonomous? So where we're starting right now is working on the core technology yeah. that is going to create our foundation for autonomy. Uh -huh. So that's one of the focus areas for my team. Okay. Uh, the, the interesting thing about our business is that actually scales across commercial military business both. In all the FEL modernization, we have requirements for either, uh, optionally piloted uh, operations and potential for fully autonomous. And then in the commercial space, we see that as a potential for a uh, safety and pilot workload reduction. Okay. So we're working on the architectures. Uh, one of the new technologies we're bringing to the commercial rotorcraft market is fly-by-wire technology. Right. Um, that's uh, starting with the Bell 525, and that will that will inherently have the architecture that enables autonomous features. On your uh, your comment about um, the differences between the, the air and the ground, yeah. Uh, there's an example I like to use a lot of the times of you know if you're in the air and you have detect and avoid system and you see something in the air. You know to avoid it. You you don't you don't wonder is that something that's a, right. that's an issue or not. It shouldn't be there. Right. Um, right. However, if you're in, if you're on a ground vehicle yeah. and and your radar lidar scans something, it has to decide is that you know a feather or a brick. Right. And it has to decide am I going to take an extreme action to avoid that. Right. The interesting thing about what helicopters or rotary wing aircraft have against fixed wing aircraft is fixed wing aircraft are uh, you know coming and going. From established runways, known locations. Yeah. The reason you have rotorcraft is to have the flexibility to land anywhere you want to. Yeah. So yeah. we actually have to have the uh, decision systems on board, the perception systems on board to evaluate landing zones, select landing zones, and to safely ingress and egress from landing zones. So we actually get a lot of that, uh, the need for that ground sensing uh -huh. on rotorcraft because of where we operate. Especially okay. when we talk about, like we talked about the, you know, developing countries or less infrastructure. Of, of needing to go out somewhere that's not well-mapped, well-defined, right. and being able to have the aircraft sense where it is and be able to make decisions based on that sensor. There's a, there's a big difference between automating something, which is repeating a task with known inputs, yeah. versus making something truly autonomous where it senses and makes a decision and responds accordingly. But it sounds like you're, you're not there yet. You're not at, you, the, the helicopters are not yet fully autonomous. Right, right. so we're, we're flying the apt the unmanned system yeah. autonomously. Uh -huh. We tell it, you know, go from here to here and it, it, it maps the route, yeah. does that. Um, then that will scale up into the helicopters. But the 
helicopters we're delivering today do not have autonomous features on them. Okay. That's, the that, that's why we're working okay. on the research team is to develop that and, and build the roadmap to implementation. And we're looking for some you know, near-term big impact things of you know, how do we prevent you know, any sort of safety incidents, things like that. How can we make our rotorcraft safer on the commercial side? And then on the military okay. side, it's going to be about you know, productivity and what are the, and then also what's the you know risk profile of a mission? Is that something they want to send a, yeah. a pilot into or not? How far away are we from full autonomy on on most of your air, aircraft? So what would you say full full autonomy? Some of that's a business decision. Sure. Of, you know what's the um, acceptance rate right. from the from the pilot and operator community? I'd say from a technology standpoint, yeah. I think you'll see that um, maturing exponentially over the next five to ten years. Yeah. Okay. I'd, I'd add one, one piece of it, too, that I think is important. When we talk about autonomy, it's, it's often easy to sort of blanket state about, about you know, implementing autonomy. Autonomy, to me, always has environmental context, use case context that comes with it. So the, the, the amount of um, environmental sensing and decision-making you need for an aircraft that's going to fly over a, a fairly desolate mining operation is different right. than what you would necessarily need for an aircraft that's flying over an urban landscape like yeah. the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And so we often think about levels or layers of autonomy yeah. that are all framed within the context of the use case that you're you're trying to implement. So let me let me play devil's advocate here. I mean, I mean, if uh, you guys have a, a long, probably the oldest helicopter company uh, around, at least that anyone knows about, and uh, and you have been established leader in pilot-based navigation. Are you the, are you guys the right company to be doing a fully autonomous uh, rotorcraft, or should you know should you kind of start from a clean slate, have a new startup, say we're going to just focus exclusively on that from the outset? Is it? Yeah, I, I'd say uh, you know it's it's important when we when we think about legacy yeah. uh, with a, a company like Bell that's got eighty five years in developing rotorcraft. Right. Um, you know, we, we spend time, you know, Jason and I spend a lot of time thinking about what are the, what are the new core competencies that yeah. we need in the organization because it's, it is an important shift in how we are thinking about the future of the organization. It's why you establish, you know, things like the innovation team so that we have this sandbox, we have this maker space to, to develop new core competencies. And so for, for um, uh, such a fundamental piece of where we think the future of aviation is going, which yeah. is some layer of autonomy and some layer of simplified vehicle operations uh -huh. in the future. Uh, it's an area where we know investment is critical and yeah. we are going to build competencies around that. Now, there are lots of ways that we have started to pursue that. Some of that has been in uh, small partnering with startups. So we certainly evaluate that community yeah. and see the work that's coming. Uh, but much of that focus is building up internally those capabilities so that we understand how to truly integrate onto our platforms in an efficient way. The, the risk of uh, sort of bifurcating those is, is really around uh, can, you, can you truly integrate the right yeah. way to, to create the system efficiencies and ultimately the system safety okay. around that. And I, and I think it's also, I actually think that's a fantastic question. And I, I don't think I've gotten that one before. Yeah. Usually it's what are we doing, not who should be doing it. So um, yeah. if, if you look uh, from a historical perspective, Bell actually led the way in a lot of the um, unmanned rotorcraft autonomy. We had a program called Eagle Eye, uh -huh. which was flying autonomously in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So we actually, um, when, when I uh, managed the V247 program, which was the last one that, that I had prior to this role, um, we leveraged a lot of the technology that we developed you know, 10, 15 years ago yeah. to be able to have a head start. And then what we're doing now is uh, looking at a broader perspective of how do we take that and advance it. 
So I, so I absolutely think we have the right background. And as Chad said, uh -huh. um, it's, it's tightly integrated into um, the, entire, the entire aircraft system. And so I think for, for us to have a guaranteed level of safety, then that, that's going to be an absolute necessity to understand and implement that ourselves. And I think what you'll see is from a um, shades of gray perspective, it's going to be a lot like you've seen in the automotive industry where you start with sensors that give pilots a warning. Like if yeah. you have a, a car that has the lane departure warnings, yeah. we're going to give pilots feedback of, hey, we have new systems on board. They can give you feedback, an extra set of eyes, you know, different wavelengths, frequency than your eyes operate at. They can give you a warning system. And then we, that transitions into not just giving you a warning, but actually taking eva evasive action for you, right. you know, down the road. So that it'll, it'll get into the levels of autonomy Chad mentioned. Okay. Of it doesn't just start off with the airplane flies, it's, you just push the button and flies itself. Yeah. It starts with you know, thousands and thousands of flight hours of collecting data on how the system's performing yeah. and provi providing the warnings prior to providing the command inputs. Yeah, and I'd add one other piece to that. Uh, when, you, when you talk about Bell's positioning in this space, one, one of the very first fundamental pieces of implementing an autonomy is about uh, fly-by-wire technology. Right. So, you know, explain what that is for yeah. our audience. Yeah. So, for, so for the audience, most, most traditional rotorcraft today are controlled uh, from the pilot input to the rotor head uh, through some form of mechanical linkage. Uh, in, in newer generations, when we implement fly-by-wire, there's basically a, a, an interpretation from the pilot inputs into a flight control computer that then sends just electronic inputs to an electromechanical actuator at the rotor head. And so that gives you the ability to do a lot of additional things in, in how you manage the flight profile of the aircraft. And, and what's important in terms of Bell's positioning in this space is we are, we are on the edge of, of certifying the first commercial fly-by-wire rotorcraft. And, and to me, that is one of the very first building blocks of how you truly roll out some level of autonomy commercially in the space. Again, there's a lot of great technology development that's happening across the industry. Yeah. But to really get something over the finish line in a certification uh, basis is, you know, in, in our opinion, in our experience, there's, there's hard work that has to be done right. there to get there. And to get to be one of the first ones over that finish line is really important for us. And I think positions as well for the future. Now, both of you have been in this, this, uh, this industry, and in fact, this company for a long time. Uh, let's, let's skip past the transitional period. And I, I know if, I, if I force you to make a prediction, <laughs> what will be um, the equilibrium or steady state use case uh, or operating features of autonomous um, uh, rotorcraft helicopter? How autonomous will it be? Do you really think that will, it'll ever be fully autonomous? It'll just be an assisted uh, kind of, a, will the pilots, still, will we still have to have the pilot controls and the pilot seat there? So I, I would think? say we have the technology to be able to fully control the vehicle today. Um, one of the autonomy demos my team did was uh, we had a moving uh, platform. So we were, we were pulling a trailer and we uh, controlled a drone autonomously yeah. um, to make a landing approach and actually land on a moving target. Right. Um, you know, full, full stop. So uh, we're able to do that today. The part we've got to get through is what's the regulatory environment? You know, what's the level of safety required? And what is the, you know, public and pilot's acceptance of that? So what you'll see eventually is the ability to combine autonomy with the fly-by-wire technology, have full vehicle control, and the role of the pilot will shift. That's... Uh -huh. um, for some period of time, there's going to be a requirement to have a fully trained, fully capable pilot on board that can always be a backup system. Right. We'll right. get past that eventually. But in the what will happen in the pilot's role over time is it will transition from a aviator 
to more of a mission manager. Uh -huh. So if you think about, um, you know, helicopters are used for search and rescue, especially like, yeah. you know, offshore, um, you know, Coast Guard missions, things like yeah. that. Right now, the pilots have a heavy workload right. to be able to fly the vehicle. Right. They will be more of monitoring the aircraft as it flies, and they'll also be participating in the search function yeah, I see. Instead of being heads down and flying. Right. You know, same thing on the military side. They yeah. will be part of uh, mission command and, you know, part of the battle rhythm. Yeah. Instead of instead of aviating, they'll be managing yeah. and, you know, supervising what the aircraft's doing, but not actually required to be uh, task-saturated doing that. So it frees the pilot up since he's there right. to be able to participate a lot more in the function of the mission instead of just providing uh, command cues to the vehicle. So it sounds like the bottleneck is not the technology, it's really uh, social norms and regulation. Right? It, yeah, so it, it's a combination of all the, of all the above. So yeah. technology's in development, it has to have a you know, level of reliability and redundancy, it has to have the regulatory environment, and you have to have the public acceptance. I mean, I, and one of my favorite things to, to watch is the, the folks that are uh, early adopters that are taking the autonomous taxis. Yeah. And there's um, some pretty good comedy that's ensued from when the autonomous taxi breaks down and they're stuck in the back seat right. or it pulls out into, into construction zones and doesn't yeah. know where to go. Yeah. We don't have that luxury in aviation oh, to do right. that. So well, there's, not, <laughs> there's not a breakdown laying in the sky. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so um, the public acceptance piece is a big portion of it. But I, I would imagine if, uh, you know, the first, we're, we have an airplane that will be able to um, fly fully autonomously by the end of this year. Oh, wow. If I offer free rides in that with no pilot on board, I doubt I'm going to get many people that accept that right, right. now. Right, right. I guess the, 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 the test with all autonomy is, are you willing to put your kid in the... In we, the, in we, the we've all had that exact discussion. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, one, one of the great examples of, of what the progression, I think, will look like is that that, that acceptance around autonomy, we, we believe will start with cargo, yeah, by and large, yeah, much like sure. traditional aviation right. did back in the day. Right. That you know there'll be great use cases for cargo missions that will that will build confidence in the technology. It will exercise the regulatory system. It will you know get community acceptance to a point where you know they feel confident, right? Yeah. Where I can put my my yeah. nine year old on on the aircraft, yeah. you know, without a pilot on board and feel good about that. But we right. think that's there's some time to be had before we get to right. that point. Right. Uh, let me ask you about sort of where we are in the 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 life cycle of of aviation innovation. So, I mean, kind of dialing back the clock, I mean, uh, more than 100 years ago with the Wright brothers, mm -hmm. we had breakthrough radical innovation. Uh, and you could say maybe the same thing with the jet engine. But it seems to me that there's kind of been a long time since then, and aviation has kind of stalled, no pun intended. <laughs> um, what's the next breakthrough, and what's holding us back? So I, I would say you've seen um, electrification changing the landscape of a lot of um, complex industries. Yeah. So for a long time, you saw an automotive industry, um, and there's a lot of corollaries there of consolidation, and there weren't new car companies showing up. The amount of investment to develop a you know, 100,000, 200,000 mile internal combustion engine and transmission and pass all the crash tests, the barrier was too high. You now with electrification, you know, if you saw at CES this year, there were you know, 10 new car companies that you'd never heard of before. Um, even you know, Sony is in the car business. Thing. Right. And so you see the same thing happening in aviation. There's multiple new aviation companies uh -huh. because there's a new technology that is a breakthrough and disruptor that is creating new possibilities. So yeah. there's, there's you know, aviation and rotorcraft companies that didn't exist five years ago. And that breakthrough is the electric motor? Oh, That's right. The yeah. advancement of battery technology yeah. to a level where you can start to use that for electric propulsion. Uh -huh. And then we're also looking at you know, other energy storage options like hydrogen storage and things like that. There's 
there's multiple ways um, to store and generate the electric power that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, it's kind of created, a, I, I'd say it's almost like a second golden age of aviation where you have right. all, these, all these new concepts, all these new prototypes, and you know, a huge portion of them will never go anywhere. Right. But it's a fascinating time as we um, experiment. And you know, the reason we, we test and experiment is we don't know the outcome. Yeah. So I think we're, we're going to learn a lot. Um, you know, if, if we look at this five years from now, a lot of the dust will have settled, and we'll see what's, what are viable concepts and how are those ready to go to market and versus what were, you know, what were um, ideas and experiments that you know, not all of them panned out. Yeah, I think even just to give a give a perspective on the explosive growth in the in the creative space <laughs> yeah. that distributed electric propulsion has has unlocked for aviation. I think a quick search and I believe it's the the Vertical Flight Society has a has a website where they they sort of track all these new uh, concepts that are out there. I think last count there was more than four hundred new concept vehicles that were somehow leveraging distributed electric propulsion in right. some fashion for any number of use cases. But I th I think that's that's a that's a key indicator of to Jason's point the number of new sort of startups in the industry the uh -huh. amount of uh, capital that's coming into the industry you know right. there's been several really significant SPACs that have been funded over the last couple of years that I think is an indicator of there's there's disruption in the avian industry and this this piece of technology is is a key enabler of that. Mm. Uh, let me I'm a labor economist by training so I want to focus let's switch to the labor labor market which to me is about people okay let's let's talk about um, Maybe, Jason, you can take this first about uh, what skills do you feel like are very valuable for innovation in space? So I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of context for it. Yeah. Um, the, you mentioned that there hasn't been a lot of uh, at least outward uh, change and in innovation yeah. in the aviation space. I think you've seen um, as um, ev evolution, natural selection of air vehicle designs has settled in, mm -hmm. you've seen, you know, the basic design of a helicopter with a big rotor and a smaller tail rotor for any torque and the layout of a commercial jet, you know, you, right. you're picking at the edges of the yeah, yeah. So a lot of what, um, obviously that's still, it's critical and important, but there's not as much opportunity there. Yeah. So what you really see is innovation in the digital and electrical side sure. of the aircraft. So the aircraft are becoming much more integrated. So software skills, Electrical engineering. Skills, oh, interesting. Yeah, um, and even uh, chemical, you know, chemical engineering. Uh -huh. As we get in, as we get into, you know, mass production of batteries uh -huh. and how you safely integrate, package, and um, you know, secure those in the aircraft. Okay, uh, Chad, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, looking back at your career and your time at Texas A and M. Uh, what was useful about uh, your degree? Um, what was what could A and M have done better? What would you tell? current graduates today, say in aerospace, uh, if they were to walk into this industry now? I mean, it's, it's such an interesting space now, and, and certainly the industry has evolved quite a bit. You know, I reflect back on the time when I was in the in the aero program, and I felt like I, I came, away, came away with a, a really sound foundation of just good, solid problem-solving skills. You know, that's probably what has served me best throughout my entire career. It wasn't that I you know, could derive a particular formula or could, you know, regurgitate some calculus. Uh, it was about just having good sound practice in how you sort of attack a problem, how you use data-driven data decision-making to, to come to good conclusions. Um, you know, the, the things that, those have been some of the things that have been most valuable, I think, in my career. You know, when I, when I look back on uh, what maybe I, I wished I, I could have gotten out of my AM experience, um, 
it, it would have probably been I, I struggled thinking I was on a certain trajectory into yeah. the space industry and not not sort of taking the time. And, and part of this is on me. Part of this is maybe on the on the way the curriculum was designed. But how do I how do I uh, experiment in some other areas to understand? Maybe I've got other passions because what I what I found when I when I dropped into my first job at, at Bell was uh, there wasn't a class I had taken on ballistics or survivabilities or signature analysis. Mm-hmm. It, at that point, it was all, did I have good sound uh, engineering practices and could I learn right. on the job? And so, you know, I think there's a there's a piece that uh, if AM could instill more of a, you know, how do we how do we create a mindset of continual learning? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just you get done with your degree and then you know I, I'm rubber stamped and I'm I'm onto my career. You know, what what served me best throughout my career is is having more of a continual learning mindset. You know, I I took a couple of years off uh, from school after I started my career at Bell and then I then I went back. I, yeah. I went and chased a graduate degree uh, in in aerospace engineering just because I wanted to bolster more technical skills. In areas that I had learned on the job that I knew were relevant then, uh-huh. uh, and then I took a couple of decades off uh, before sort of uh, reinventing myself again in a learning environment where, because I had had all this breadth of business experience, I wanted to learn more about, you know, candidly being a, a corporate entrepreneur. You know, how do I how do I have an entrepreneurship mindset within a larger organization? How do I help us advance? And uh, so so complementing some of that engineering capability. In early degree, with with a little bit more of how how does this impact the business world? Uh-huh. And would have been a couple of interesting caveats to me and and how to how to advance the degree. Okay, last question. Uh, what 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 have the Aggie Core values meant to you? How have they impacted your life? Oh man, A- Aggie Core values to me. I I, I have always appreciated that. Um, you know, Aggie Core values have such a strong moral compass them and and you find in various corporate environments that um, those those values don't always hold true with other folks and so you know having having great partners like you know Jason and I have known each other for a number of years and having a having a trust relationship uh, with him and knowing that you know we can have great collaborative conversations you know I, I think Jason and I talked talked more than once about um, we can disagree and we can argue and we can still be friends at the end of that. And, and knowing that there's this professionalism that comes with, you know, being, being part of, part of uh, Texas A&M and having that sort of Aggie spirit about how you conduct yourself in business each and every day, I, to me, was a really important lesson I've just carried throughout my entire career. And I guess the reveal preferences. I, there is there is an indication at this point, and so the third one the third one is now predestined. But yeah, I've got I've got two of them here already, so I'm looking looking forward to continuing to be a part of this university community. Great, great. Well, I want to thank both of you, Chad and Jason, for your time today. This has been a really exciting uh, deep dive into uh, into aviation. Actually, we hope we'll have more of these. Uh, if you are watching, we do have on our uh, YouTube channel. We have a uh, we did a fireside chat with uh, David Mayman of Jetpack Aviation. And uh, I think we'll probably have um, Ben Marcus from UpVentures later this year. So hopefully this will be part of a little series we'll have on, on aviation. Thank you uh, to both of you for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks. Great. Appreciate oh, it. Awesome. Great. Thank All you. Right. you